Well, good morning, everyone. We're going to get started here. Let's start pulling it together, all right? Guys, good to see you today. Happy Columbus Day weekend. We've got a lot of people out today between Boulder Retreat and vacations and all other kinds of things that happen on three-day weekends when we get them in the fall and the weather promises to be somewhat okay. So today is a one-off day. It's within the context of the Minor Prophets, but it's an excursus day. And if you don't know what an excursus is, is if you ever read like um, Bible commentaries, especially critical commentaries, what they'll do is they'll follow along with the biblical text commenting on it. But every now and then they just want to talk about something that they want to talk about and they'll break it out and they'll call that an excursus. So today is actually a by request excursus day on the day of the Lord. Was talking with Zach Schmidt last um, Sunday and yeah, I'm putting you on the spot so Zach, you can wave and if you don't know Zach, great guy sitting over here. And he was just asking about um, some, some day of the Lord references throughout the rest of the Old Testament prophetic corpus and I thought maybe this would be a good time to pause through our journey in the prophets to just talk about this thing more that Joel has introduced us to called the day of the Lord. Because I honestly believe this, if you get the day of the Lord, you get the Bible. I think from one perspective, the day of the Lord is the central theme that you can hang the entire biblical narrative on and understand Jesus' ministry in light of. And that's what I want to try to unfold for you here today. So we're going to jump right in, and then there's going to be some breakout times later on where we get to dig into the Bible at our tables and things like that. Just by way of review, this thing that we're calling the day of the Lord, it goes by, I don't know why that's not displaying, there we go. It goes by several different terms in the Bible. You almost have to kind of follow a concept more than a specific piece of verbiage or trigger language. Here are some common ones. Obviously, it'll be called the day of the Lord, right? And capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is always Yahweh. That's why I call it the day of Yahweh. But day of the Lord is the most common, and in its more abbreviated forms, that day, the day. I think of Acts chapter 2, where Peter, commenting on Pentecost, calls it the latter days, or even the last day you'll get sometimes. Sometimes you'll get the term judgment day. I didn't put that on there, but that's a New Testament one that you'll see, or certainly a theological Christian term that you'll see. But then also these other oddities, like visit, because the day of the Lord is fundamentally the day when God comes to visit his people. He shows up, right? He comes down from heaven and he personally comes to do something or carry something out on behalf of his people, for his people, to wake up his people, somehow in relation to the world. Afterwards, we saw that one in Joel, right? And that one can totally slip you by. And then things like, the time is coming, or phrases like that. All of these are expressions of what you'll come across in relation to this concept called Day of the Lord. And this is my biggest recommendation to you when you read the Bible. If you see any of these phrases, a flag should kind of go off, uh, an alarm should go off going, this is probably what we're talking about. 
But even if you don't see one of these phrases, but the language seems to suggest it, it doesn't automatically mean that's what it's talking about, but you're wise to kind of ask and discern and, and ponder, is this where the biblical author is taking me? Because fundamentally, it's not about a key word, it's about a concept that you find talked about in a variety of different ways through the Bible. Does that make sense? So, we know what some of the language is, but I think the more important thing for really understanding what the prophets are doing and how it ties into the New Testament message is what were these prophets looking towards? In other words, what were they expecting? And what I don't mean is let's list up all the very specific manifestations of it, like Joel was expecting locusts, Hosea is expecting armies. No, no, I get that. But can we summarize it in a broader kind of way? What do locusts and armies and all these other things basically represent or show in a summary fashion? And the best summary I've seen of this distills it or boils it down to 12 characteristics. 12 characteristics or 12 features that you can, by and far, this isn't perfect, but by and far use as a roadmap to get your mind inside both the prophetic hope of what the day of the Lord is and the New Testament, both fulfillment and hope of it playing out. And so what I did is I put them on the screen for you. All right, there they are. Yeah, right, I knew that was coming. Yeah. I tried. So, yeah, exactly. There are front rows here, John, all right? <laughs> I, I died on this thing this week because it's like I wanted them all to be on one screenshot. And next to each of them, what I did also is put a whole list of just minor prophet, well, not just minor prophet, but Old Testament prophet references um, to sample it or where you can find it. Now, John wants it bigger. Well, we're going to invite John to come and look at the screen, but for every other person except John, I actually have a handout for you today so you can... Uh... <laughs> now, th this is dorky, and, and I'm just going to ask you, please indulge me in this. It's two-sided. And yeah, I know it's not formatted like that you wanted. I just copied the screen, all right? One side has this screenshot with all the Bible passages on it. The other side just has the characteristics without the Bible references. So both sides are identical. One just doesn't have the Bible reference. And I'm gonna ask you with all that is in your ability to, con thank you, if you can hand them out, but not to John. If you can hand them out to everyone else, that would be great. Um, I am gonna ask you if you can refrain, do everything with your ability of self-control to refrain from looking at the Bible reference side. Just look at the characteristic side for now, but if you do really need to so badly come up close and check it out, you can see it right there, all right? She gave you one, John. She's kind, all right. All right. So let's, um, Kelly's coming around, handing them out. Hey, mad props for Kelly this morning, right? Thank you, Kelly. And if you didn't clap, you didn't get one either. Um, let's walk them through together you can start reading them on your own, of course, but let's walk them through together and then um, we'll do some breakout stuff on them. 
You can summarize all of the prophets into two basic themes, judgment and hope. At the end of the day, you can take Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and so on, all the way through Malachi, and say, what's their basic message? It's a simultaneous message of both judgment and hope, okay? Now, within that, it gets more nuanced, and that's what this sheet is meant to do. What are the expected judgments, and what are the expected hopes? Well, the good news is there's really only two judgments and ten hopes if you try to distill these down. And quite honestly, I do think that speaks to somewhat of the nature and character of God. God is a God of judgment and a God of hope. And if we ever make him just one or the other, we are not understanding the totality of God and we're missing the substance and character of who he is and how he's revealed himself. But there is this real strain that I think the deeper nature of God is always a nature of love over judgment or hope over disaster, that somehow it's more true to the spirit and nature of God to be a God who is a God of love, who has to judge, who chooses to judge, but his deeper nature is to actually love, forgive, and give hope. And I think you see that reflected in the amount of the ways that the prophets talk about both. Does that make sense? So let's talk about it here quick. We've got two judgment characteristics. One, that all evil people will be judged. It is a key theme that you will see through all the prophets. We see it on Israel. We saw it in Joel, right? There is this call to repentance because of this impending disaster. Well, because of a disaster of the locusts and an impending disaster of the nations that they sort of foreshadow. And God's saying, this is my army coming to bring judgment, right? It's a judgment on Israel for their idolatry. It's a judgment on them for their hardness of heart, for their own violence, for becoming just like the nations around them. But there's this prophetic hope that it's not just Israel that God is working in conjunction with, that God is actually working for and on behalf of the entire world, and that the entire world is answerable to him. And even the nations that are instruments of his judgment are responsible for God and will face their own judgment as well for the choices that they make, even if being used by a tool of God. And so there is this prophetic vision that all people, all evil people will someday be judged before God. And a lot of times, I should mention, for Israel, this is good news. You'll see this in the prophets. You'll see this especially in the Psalms. There's an entire class of Psalms called imprecatory Psalms. And that's a big kind of fancy theological word, but it's a collection of Psalms that basically kind of boil down to this phrase. Kill them all, let God sort them out. All right? And they're not going to go kill them all, but they're asking God to kill them all. This is the break their backs, O Lord. Blot them out of the book of life, O Lord. Strike them dead, O Lord. Um, my favorite is Psalm 137. Bash their children's, their infants' heads against the rocks, O Lord. Um, just that one needs to be codified in a worship song. I don't know how, but uh, those of you talented. I mean, th this is kind of the nature of it. Because what they're doing is they're broken, oppressed, abused people. And if you've ever been tormented or abused or oppressed and you see the person, the bully, the conqueror, the evil one, not only getting away with it, but gloating and thriving as a result, 
You felt that call for revenge. You know that desire for vindication. You know what it's like to sit there in the face of injustice or evil and go, Lord, make this one right. That's what they're trying to express. And so there is a, I don't even know how you characterize it. It's both simultaneously a warning, but also a hope that all evil people will be judged. Make sense? And so you see Isaiah with his woes to the nations. You see the minor prophets saying Israel and Judah to be sure, but also the nation. Okay. Two, by extension, is interesting. Creation will be judged, not just people, but the very created order itself will also undergo this, and I think I put the, the phrase, wrenching upheaval on there, that it will be shaken by the presence of God because when God shows up, the world itself quakes. And so this gets expressed and described through like, well, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon will be turned to blood, the stars will be blotted out from the skies, there'll be earthquakes and fire and smoke. Think Mount Sinai. God shows up, it's like a volcano happening, right? The mountain shakes, the sounds are deafening, the fire comes down. Because when the glory of God finally appears, not even creation can stand steadfast in his midst. And so there's this idea, this expectation talked about through the prophets that when the day of the Lord comes or when God comes and finally visits, expect to see that. Expect to see creation itself quake. In his midst, yeah. Well, it would be, except I think more specifically, the pangs of the woman in labor is almost anticipation of the day of the Lord. So, like when you finally hit labor, I would say you, pro like when you finally hit delivery, you're hitting the totality of those pangs, and all the pangs are building up to it. But yeah, that's exactly what it's getting at. And so, like the locusts are creation; they're part of the created order, right? Locust plagues are not the way that God intends the world to be, just like famine and any other kind of um, animal pestilence, right? Um, maybe we would call them mosquito hordes here in northern Illinois or, or southern Wisconsin. It's like something's out of whack here. There shouldn't be this many of them in this kind of way. It's a birth pang, right? It's, it's part of things that are out of whack in creation and God's going to come and creation's going to quake and he's also going to, well, we'll see momentarily. Yeah. That is the million dollar question. How literal and how metaphorical is it? And more specifically, there are certainly literal instances of it, but how many other times will the Old Testament writers draw on those literal instances and describe an instance metaphorically using that language to connect it to what a visitation of God is like? Let me give you a key example. Do you remember King Saul? Um, we got David, um, who's been anointed king, and Saul, who's the current anointed king, can't come to terms with it. It says that God has withdrawn his spirit from Saul, and Saul, rather than going into a path of repentance, goes off the deep end. He starts consulting with witches. He starts trying to kill David. He's doing everything in his power to hold on to power and regain what he has lost. Saul's end 
is a tragic end. He goes to battle. You can read about this in 1 Samuel um, 30, 31. It's the last chapter of the book. And it's paralleled in Chronicles. Now, it's fascinating that when you see the event described, you see it described in the historic narratives as Saul goes out to war, they get overpowered, he gets wounded, and he asks his armor bearer to kill him so he won't fall into the hands, and I believe it's the Philistines, but don't quote me on that, okay? He asks his armor bearer to kill him so that he won't fall into their hands and be tortured and humiliated and everything else. His armor bearer won't do it. So Saul throws himself on his own sword and then his armor bearer dies as well. That's how it's described in the historic narrative. But read Psalm 18 sometime because Psalm 18 describes this event and it describes it using what I would call apocalyptic language as though God had come down orchestrating the arrows and, and describing them as firebolts from heaven and things like this. And, you know, maybe I should just sample it to give you a flavor of this. Um, do you want me to go down this path or, or do you get the point? Uh, okay, do this. Turn to First uh, Samuel just really quick. And we'll just look at both of them in, in parallel. And I think it's 31, but I never remember what the last chapter is of 1 Samuel. Uh, yeah, it's 31. Saul takes his life. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the Israels fled before them. And many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan. Remember, that's the one David loved. Um, they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and um, Melchishua. Fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword, run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and his men died together that same day. Day. Certainly tragic, but nothing in that sounds like what you would call blood and fire and billows of smoke, right? Now look at Psalm 18. And now there's this like little like prescript here. It's called a colophon. It's like a little rabbinic note. Um, that they try to bring context to, and it says, of David, servant of Yahweh. He sang to Yahweh the words of this song when Yahweh delivered him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hands of Saul. Saul is now dead. Saul is no longer pursuing him. I'm not saying he composed this the next day, but it's in reflection on all those events, okay? I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. Verse 3, I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and am saved from my enemies. Verse 4, the cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. I cried out to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. 
burning coals blazed out of him. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky, out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Lord resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemies. Great bolts of lightning and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed. The foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast from the breath of your nostrils. You can read on on your own. Does that sound like anything that happened when you read 1 Samuel 31? So is David just full of it? Is he lying to us? Like what's going on here? And this is how the prophets will sometimes work. Do you remember how we said on the timeline, and I can show this to you again, that what happens... Oh, come on, that's horrible. Why would it go there? Sorry, guys. It has a mind of its own. That the prophets will see an event. Or, or rather, people will experience an event. And what the prophets will do is describe the fuller vision of how God is involved in that event to show that it's not just random, it's not just happenstance, it's not just life as we know it, but that God is invested and involved, right? What someone like David is doing in Psalm 18 is he's using biblical language or he's using what's called apocalyptic language, this blood and fire and billow of smoke language as a way of saying God's hand is involved in this entire event of Saul dying. I'm not suggesting that God made Saul commit suicide. That would be a wrong interpretation of this. But it is to say that as God is playing out the events that are happening between Saul and David, God is invested, God is involved, God is moving things in certain directions, and it uses God language, which is, of course, earthquakes and blood and fire and billows of smoke, to make that point. I saw an arrow shoot someone, right? I saw a guy fall on his sword. But behind this, we have the judgment of God. Behind this, we have God involved and God moving through it. Does that make sense? You see how the Bible nuances itself that way? So every time you come across this, what I would call judgment language in creation, you got to kind of go, okay, is the sun really going to be darkened? Well, maybe, sometimes it is. Or is it borrowing that kind of language? And Mike, I don't know if you realized you opened that big of a, a question, but thank you. No, no, don't. So uh, it, it's good, and hopefully that makes sense. So we don't want to leave it on bad news, right? Let's jump over to grace characteristics. And these, I think, are going to be pretty self-evident, but if they're not, Please say so and ask and I'll fill it out, okay? What do they expect when God visits? Well, of course it's God visiting. So first and foremost, God's actually here. God will come and personally dwell with his people. God is no longer separate from us in heaven. We are no longer hiding from God in the garden while he walks in the cool of the day. God's showed up. And if you love God, well, you want that. That's good news right? Two, the forgiveness of sins will fully 
manifest. It will be fully present. It will be poured out completely. There's this idea in the Old Testament corpus that we have this very intricate, involved sacrificial system, right? You remember this from like Leviticus? You know, you got to bring your goat, you got to bring your bull, you got to bring your pigeons and all the other animals that I guess you naturally raise. Um, And you'd sacrifice them to the Lord as guilt offerings and sin offerings. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament will comment on this pretty explicitly. But the idea is basically this. Atonement has to be made for sin. The demand of sin is life, right? And life from a Hebraic perspective is found in the blood. So Leviticus 17, I believe, the life force is in the blood, right? And so what you do is you use blood as that representation of life when you kill something and that would be offered to God. Church in the Old Testament world was a bloody affair. My job would not be a preacher. My job would be a butcher. That's what they would do, just sacrifice all day long. I mean, I don't know if you brought your young kids to church or the temple back in those days. You probably did, and they were just a hardier breed, but whatever. Um, But you had to keep doing it, right? Because, okay, I sin again, and and so we got to bring an animal again. And it never kind of really seemed like it quite worked. It seemed like it was like band-aids on a hemorrhaging wound. You ever, you ever, ever have a hemorrhaging wound? Ever have a hemorrhaging head wound? Because that would be interesting, and I want that story. <laughs> Bill, you have, yeah, you would, Bill. All right, man, we got to hear that one someday. That's fantastic. All right, Bill, Bill has the greatest stories. Pull up a chair next to Bill someday, get him a cup of coffee, and for 10 minutes, just say, give me your craziest stories, Bill, and that will be a well-spent 10 minutes of your life, all right? But sin is this hemorrhaging wound. Well, for all people, and especially the Old Testament people of God. And the sacrificial system was almost like a first aid measure on it because you had to keep doing it. And even after we're given all these sacrifices, you still had to do the Day of Atonement. You still had to cleanse the temple. You still had to go through all these rituals. And how can the blood of bulls and goats ever be equated in value to the blood of a human being anyway? So it never seemed like it was qualitatively enough and so there was this hope that when god comes and the day comes forgiveness is fully restored forgiveness is fully present all sins are taken care of all sins are washed away and that has very intimate connections to what we're feeling and experiencing because if we're feeling and experiencing calamity we must still be in our sins is kind of this old testament way oh it's finally erased it's finally washed away prophets talk about that make sense all right let's keep pushing through son of david will reign second samuel 7 god makes king david a promise that um i'm going to bless your house meaning your dynastic line David, and one of your descendants will sit on my throne forever, and they're anointed, which means Messiah, and so there's this this messianic hope, which means there will be this Davidic ruler um, who will restore the kingdom of God, and that he will reign forever, um, for God's spirit will be poured out, we saw that in Joel 5, that God's people will be changed, and this happens at a um, in a twofold kind of way. One, that they'll be physically changed, meaning um, your ailments, your diseases, your handicaps, your limitations, the corruption and degradation of your own body, these things that we fight and face, right? 
well, that's going to be renewed back to the way you're supposed to be. Where, where um, uh, the weak knees will grow strong, the lame will leap like a deer, you, you know, people will be healed and redeemed. But it also talks about internal change, change of heart. That hearts of stone will be replaced with hearts of flesh. That people will no longer need to be taught the way of God because their hearts will be so drawn and attuned to God that they don't need to learn it anymore because the heart is now inclined that way as opposed to rebellious towards him. So so we'll be changed inside and out. Make sense? Creation will be restored. So not only is creation going to quake before God, but the brokenness of creation itself will be restored to its Edenic paradise state, if you will, as well. The dead will be raised. It's all kind of an extension of that, right? Israel will return to the land. Israel is constantly finding themselves enslaved in other lands, be it Egypt, be it Babylon, be it Assyria, be it wherever the heck they get dragged off to. No, God's going to bring them back. They're going to have that, God, that, that land that God promised them again. The kingdom is going to be restored. Gentiles will come to be God's people. It's not an exclusive thing for the circumcised alone or the descendants of Abraham alone. And finally, shalom will mark the kingdom. And shalom is a very important Hebrew word to know. It often gets translated as peace. But the problem with that is we equate peace to an absence of conflict. And that, while certainly is good, is is very short-sighted in how they talked about peace. Because when they talked about shalom, what it meant was something more like fullness, blessing, prosperity, the wholeness of God. Which certainly means your enemies aren't like, driving your nose into the ground and plundering your stuff and robbing you blind. But it goes beyond that to just milk and honey and flourishing and and, and things of that nature. It's a pretty good hope, isn't it? I kind of like these hopes. And this is what you can summarize. And any summary runs the risk of leaving some details out. But this is what you can summarize the Old Testament prophetic hope. Around and I, and I really encourage you this. If you can burn these 12 into your mind, or you fold this in half and you tuck it in your paper Bible, or you fold it in eights and tape it to the back of your phone, all right? And you have it as a quick reference whenever you access your Bible. But honestly, the more you can ingest it, the better. The more you are going to see the entire message of the Bible, certainly the prophets, but next time when we get to the New Testament explode life. You go, oh, I get it. I get how all the pieces tie together. I get why they're doing what they're doing now. I get why they're talking about what they're talking about now. And you can kind of start infusing, honestly, even yourself. What is your hope? You know, in God, what really is your hope? Because I always think it's important that while we can have our own hopes and dreams to tether our own hopes to what God has promised... This is what God has promised. This is what he's inviting you to hope in. And I can't speak for you, but I'll just say for me that when I see what God's hope is versus my hope, my hope pales in comparison. 
that what God is promising me is something deep and rich and fulfilling, and this is a hope worth having. And that, of course, is the message of Christianity, is inviting people to this hope. This is a hope that God is offering. And I find it's not just figuring out the Bible, but it infuses into your life and becomes a platform by which you live, especially when you find yourself in the locust plagues or the conquering armies or the Philistines overtaking you. You know what I mean? Well, we burned the clock on this one today. So we'll part to it. Um, thank you, Zach, for bringing this up. And by the way, just to piggyback, I do take requests. So um, if there is ever like a one-off excursus that you're interested in, um, I can happily take that one off in my mind and turn it into 27 more that I think we're going to end up in. But uh, um, yeah, I'll take your question quick and then we'll break. Yeah, basically, where do the Gentiles fit into the promise of the land with true Israel? Um, I'm not going to leave you hanging on that, but I'm going to leave you hanging this week, okay? So I will note that one. We'll get to it because it's a little bit bigger than an easy answer. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Please bring this back because I'm not going to make more copies, all right? And uh, if you got good eyes, it will be up here. Um, but otherwise, scan it in your phone or do whatever you want to do. And we'll pick up with it next time. God bless. Thanks for coming today, guys. And uh, God bless.